Hello all, and a warmest of welcomes to a bonus birthday tale. Well, it's a bonus for many of you. Some, it'll be a bit of a refresh from the past. A bonus tale for the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, because on the day I record this, it is the show's sixth birthday today, and that is absolutely mind-bending. Now, I'll get old Gwyneth Paltrow in a minute. I do have to do a tiny little bit of work, and that's something I've been promised. Someone is sharing a promo for my show, and I think it's only kind enough to do it back. So I want to tell you about a new podcast series coming out called The Storyteller. It's the third series of it, and this one is called Naked Villainy. Now, veteran crime journalist and TV presenter Isla Trucker the creator of the top-rated true crime podcast series The Storyteller, and its first two series that are out, Murder Most Foul and Violent Delights, is now back with its third incantation, Naked Villainy, and which I have to mention because it's history-making. Because in it, Isla was granted permission to record the court case in full of a significant historic brutal murder trial. Now, earlier this year, an 82-year-old retired scientist, Dr. Christopher Harrison, was jailed for life after being found guilty of murdering his ex-wife, Dr. Brenda Page, back in Scotland in 1978 when she was 32 and he was 37. Brenda was a brilliant geneticist working on cutting-edge scientific research at Aberdeen University at the time of her murder, but it was more of a part-time job as an escort girl which grabbed the headlines and a killer evaded justice for 45 years after murdering Brenda, helped by his own advanced knowledge of forensic science. Over the 33 main episodes of Naked Villainy, including its bonus content, which has been unedited given that this is a first, not only will listeners hear in depth, and as a court did, the jigsaw puzzle of evidence being revealed, but also the bizarre explanations given by Christopher Harrison to explain away evidence that had put him in the dock. There's also exclusive interviews from the STV documentary Unsolved, which have never been heard before. Millions of listeners from around the world have already tuned in to listen to the first two series, which also cover high-profile Scottish murders, and this one promises to set the bar higher, and as I said before, to be groundbreaking. A spokesperson for the Judicial Office for Scotland said, Justice being dispensed in public is a key principle of our legal system. Following an application under our broadcast protocol, we are now pleased to have allowed a podcaster to record proceedings for the first time. We hope that this will further support the principle of open justice and enhance public understanding of the legal system. So it sounds pretty good, or what? Eh? The storyteller Naked Villainy is out now on the Audio Boom Network and available through all good podcast providers. So it's Gwyneth time now. Then it's the show's sixth birthday today, and from the bottom of my heart, I can't thank all of you listening enough because you really have got the show to this point. It would be nothing without you. Well. It would be me talking to Pixie in the spare room. So it's absolutely amazing. And I did put a bit of a meandering post on Facebook before, but when I started six years ago and I rushed out the Osset Exorcist murder, I thought it was a great tale from the off. What a one to start with. And looking back now, I think to myself, I'm six years further experienced. I could have probably researched it more. 
it may have sounded better, but I'm still so proud of it because everybody has to start somewhere, don't they? And through the six years of the show, we've done what, I think we're on the eighth series now. We've heard some mind-bending tales, met some many evil, monstrous people, uh, developed a few catchphrases. I grabbed a true crime enthusiast cat somewhere in the midst of it. But what I want to say really is, apart from thank you, I look forward to the next six years. I've lost not one iota of the passion that I have for doing the show. In fact, I probably gained more. And that's all down to you folks. You don't realise sometimes when you do a show like this, it can feel like a bit of a mountain sometimes, especially if you've got loads going on in real life as well. But it might be a kind word, it might be a nice review, and it just gives you that spur on and makes you want to do the absolute best you can. You guys set that bar for me, so thank you very much. Much love out to you all. So the bonus episode that selected is a bit of a long tale. It is a bit, and it's probably one of the furthest back that we've ever gone on the show. It, yes, it certainly is. I can I can think of about one other account that might be a bit earlier than it, but it's quite a savage crime. And it's I know they're not popular with everybody, but it's also an unsolved one. Sorry about that, folks, but I hope you enjoy it anyway. From me to you all, thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy the birthday bonus episode. Hello all and the very warmest of welcomes to another bonus episode exclusively for Patreon supporters of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, which I have to thank you folks listening very kindly for making happen. I'm of course Paul, the creator, host and True Crime Enthusiast of the show's title. The mog who sleeps like a log, Peeksy, is right here as ever. You might hear his little bell if you listen out. There you go. And you folks are you folks, the wonderful enthusiasts that keep the magic happening with your kind support. It's fabulous of you all to do so, thank you so very much for it all, and I hope that as the bonus tale finds you, then it finds you and all of yours good, safe and well, and having a better week than Meatloaf. Well, which to be fair, it's pretty bloody difficult to have a worse one, isn't it? So, bonus episode time has come round again then, and if this is your first jaunt into some extra enthusiasts, you lucky lucky lot, you'll find here that I don't really preamble too much to begin, and there are no live reads or ads or promos for any other shows, we're just right down to the tale, or tales, that I've selected for the bonus time around. This time around then on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, there comes a change to the planned episode, and one that I'm sure when we come to review the series, 
if we ever come to review all these Patreon episodes, and I do want to do that, I really do, I must stress. But when we do, I'm not sure if this one will prove to be one of the more popular ones because it's an unsolved episode. And I know that these do frustrate some listeners who like a nice resolution to cases and have everything boxed off and squared away. And if so, then you'll probably bloody hate this one. Because not only are all three accounts unsolved, but each of them take place also at the beginning of the 20th century. So the perpetrators, or perpetrator, you never know, will themselves long be deceased now too. It's the furthest back we've ever been here on The Enthusiast, but the cases that struck me, and I always feel it's good to try something different, because if you don't, then you'll never know, will you? The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events involving that of a sexual nature and dealing with crimes against children that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast for the first part of a bonus episode I've entitled The Lost Girls of Liverpool. For the first part of our tale then, as I said, we're off back to the start of the 20th century and to the city of Liverpool in Merseyside, which I'm sure needs absolutely no introduction whatsoever. It's the home of the bloody Beatles, isn't it? What I will begin with is a question. Do you believe in the supernatural? In the 1980s, reports began circulating around the Liverpool areas of Lodge Lane, Toxteth and Edge Hill of sightings of the spectre of a girl, around about 10 years old, who would roam around the streets of the areas, dressed in a cloak and wearing a beret or a tam-o'-shanter type headdress. The fanciful reports all describe a figure appearing deathly pale, eyes as black and as lifeless as that of a doll, who would slowly approach people, open-mouthed and uttering a low moaning sound from the back of her throat, before them invariably legging it, shit up absolutely by what they'd seen. Reportedly, these sightings tailed off at the end of the 1980s, although sightings of the Phantom are reported sporadically even to the present day. Now, whether you're a Mulder or a Scully, if you're intrigued by this, or you dismiss it outright as, shut up, Paul, you waffling load of old bollocks there, the likely genesis of this concerns a case that takes place the furthest back we've gone here on the show before just after the turn of the 20th century, in 1905. Back then, number 64 Wendell Street, a terraced house in the district of Toxteth, was home to the Piers family, who had lived there for the previous three years, and which was comprised of 47-year-old bricklayer William Piers, his 43-year-old wife, Elizabeth, their five sons, and their youngest child, their 10-year-old daughter, who was also named Elizabeth after her mother. Around midnight on Saturday, October the 28th, 1905, the elder Elizabeth woke up and sent her daughter out on an errand to head over to a butcher's shop a short distance away on Lodge Lane to get the family some cooked pork and potatoes. Dressing in a smart, plain dress, placing her red tam-o'-shanter hat on and pulling on a long, shawl-like cloak, the child was given a plate to carry the food home on and sixpence to pay for it with. Now I know this sounds all sorts of things wrong with this, so much that I can't even begin to describe, but it was a very different time back then after all. In that day and age, 
the junction of the A562 Smithdown Road and the B5173 Lodge Lane was at the heart of a thickly populated neighbourhood crisscrossed by trams and where the shops and merchants of the area tended to stay open later on a Saturday night. The area was bustling until well into the early hours and parents therefore thought nothing of turfing the children out on errands whatever time of day or night it was. It boggles the mind, doesn't it? So off Elizabeth set from her home in Wendell Street, turned right into Longfellow Street, her destination being at the end of here, only a short distance along, but somewhere on what should have been just a six-minute walk, Elizabeth vanished. She never returned from her errand. Now, Elizabeth Pierce Sr. had a brother who lived nearby, and who Elizabeth and the Pierce children often called on to visit. So when the girl hadn't arrived back home by 1am, it was here that the family assumed was where she was, having stopped in to visit. Who called for a visit at 1am like, you tell me. However, as the hours wore on with no sign of Elizabeth, and soon her parents were concerned, yet not frantic, as you would be today of course. Several relatives were contacted in those early hours, but all said the same thing. Elizabeth was not with them, and none of them had seen her. However, for reasons which we shall hear later on, the Pierce family did not contact police immediately to report their daughter as missing. Eight and a half hours after she'd set off on her errand, at 8.35am that Sunday, Another child who'd been sent out on an errand, eight-year-old Frances Miles, whilst on her way to fetch a jug of milk from a local shop, came across a ghastly scene at the top of the entry that backed onto Cullen Street, just three streets away from Wendell Street. Breathlessly running home, she garbled some story about a little girl who had fainted to her mother, who took absolutely no notice of Frances's story, and instead chided her for coming home without the milk, and sent her out once again. At about the same time as Francis was telling her tale to her mother, a carter named Bill Wilson stepped out of his backyard on Cullen Street, off to work at a local stable, and noticed first an empty plate lying on the ground, near to a shape lying nearby in the gloomy entry. At first he thought it nothing more than a bundle of rags and tarpaulin, but when he looked down for a closer inspection, he noticed it was the body of a girl of about 10 years of age lying on her back. She was wearing some sort of shawl or cloak, which had been uncoupled from around her neck and placed underneath her body. A red tam o'shanter headpiece lay nearby too, both items of clothing sodden from the downpour that had occurred that morning. Sadly, with no signs of life apparent, one of the girl's arms was raised in a peculiar yet grotesque way, for it had been deformed and twisted out of shape, as though something heavy had crushed it. Her eyes and mouth were wide open, and her face bore an expression of extreme shock. There was also extensive deep bruising to the girl's throat, and the flesh on the right side of her face was discoloured and swollen, as though someone had struck her hard in the face before strangling her. Although Bill raised the alarm immediately and the child was carried to a nearby house where an attempt to revive her was made, it was clear that the child was beyond any medical help 
and was conveyed to the southern hospital, where doctors there officially pronounced her dead. Meanwhile, three streets away from where the girl had been discovered, the Piers family's heart sank when they heard news of a girl's body being found in the entry, and before long, they had the nightmarish task of identifying their daughter in the hospital mortuary, for it was indeed the body of Elizabeth Piers. The post-mortem examination, held on the 31st of October, revealed that the 10-year-old had been savagely and violently raped, and had died from a combination of wounds received from this, mutilation to her genital area, and suffocation caused by being choked as she was raped. Three days later, while the city coroner, Mr T. E. Sampson, had no hesitation in declaring a verdict of murder by person or persons unknown, before postponing the inquest into Elizabeth's death, her funeral was held, conducted by the curate of St Clement's Church, the Reverend James Harper. An incredible 30,000 people, horrified by the murder of the young girl, lined the streets to pay their respects and to see the hearse and the three mourning carriages. A procession headed by three mounted police officers and a cortege of officers make their way to the Toxteth Park Cemetery on Smithdown Road. Whilst blinds in the houses on the route were drawn as a mark of respect and women cried out for the perpetrator to face justice as the procession passed them, scores of floral tributes to Elizabeth lined the route including a wreath from the children of Tiber Street School, where Elizabeth had attended, and a smaller wreath from her best friend at the school, an arrangement of violets which spelled out simply, Lizzie. Now, the subsequent investigation soon produced an empty house in Cullen Street that was stained with a large pool of blood in one of the downstairs rooms, leading police to believe that this house just a few yards from the back entry where Lizzie had been found, was the scene of the murder. They further believed that, because Cullen Street was somewhat of a detour from the route she would have taken, she'd either been intercepted on the corner of here, silenced and bodily carried to the house, or the trusting girl had been lured there on some pretext. A number of witnesses who claimed to have seen the man who was most likely Lizzie's killer also came forward in the early days of the investigation, including one who described a man of about 35 to 40 years of age, about 5 feet 10 inches in height, and who sported a dark moustache at the scene and about an hour before Lizzie set off on her errand. But it was the testimony of a man named George Amos Wollstoneholm that drew the attention of police. After volunteering information at Derby Road Police Station following reports of the murder being published, he told police that he was a dock labourer and had been living for 12 months on and off at number 41A, a lodging house on St Anne Street. He had a clear recollection of his movements on the day of the murder, but where he came into the tale is that as Lizzie had set off on her fatal errand, Wollstoneholm claimed that he'd been returning to his lodges on St Anne Street after a trip to the nearby town of Widnes. When he reached the corner of Cullen Street on his journey, sometime between 1.15 and 1.20am, he estimated, he claimed that he saw a man coming out of the back entry to the street, where Lizzie's body would later be found, a man who looked alarmed and agitated, it's quoted, and hurrying away. 
The description Wolstenholme gave matched that perfectly of the man seen by the earlier witness. However, at the inquest into Lizzie's death, Wolstenholme told a convoluted and somewhat contradictory story to explain how he had come to be on Smithdown Road between 1.15am and 1.30 on the morning of the murder. Wolstenholme told the inquest, I went to witness that day between noon and a little after 1pm and I got to witness at 1.20pm. I went there with a man named Harry Smith, a docker like myself, and we asked around a few public houses for a man named Thompson from whom we hoped to get work. But we were told that Thompson had left the area, and so we decided to leave Witness at 7 o'clock, but having no money, we walked back to Liverpool. After a five and a half hour walk, Walsenholm claimed that he and his friend had reached Smithdown Road, but as they neared the workhouse which was formerly on the site, it's an Asda supermarket today, so it's not a million miles removed really, Smith had stopped, claiming that his feet were too sore to continue. Walsenholm had continued after leaving his friend sat down on the road, and a further distance along had sidled up an alleyway just off Cullen Street to urinate. The time was now between 1.15 and 1.30am. Here, Walsenholm noticed an entry on his left, and it was from here that he'd seen the dark-haired stranger emerge at a brisk pace, as we said, somewhat alarmed and agitated. Walsenholm could provide a decent enough description of the stranger, furthering that the man had worn a dark cap, a muffler scarf and dark coat and vest, complete with moleskin trousers that appeared dirty and wet, as if they'd been splashed with dirty water from the thighs downwards. When asked by the coroner which way the man had then gone, Walsenholm replied that he'd seen the man head off towards nearby Tunnel Road. He then continued, I went off and down Crown Street, up to London Road, past the old Haymarket, and walked up Stanley Road to the Alexandra Dock, because I'd heard there was work on a boat there, but this wasn't the case. So I then went home to my lodgings. I got back there, in St Anne Street, about seven in the morning. No one saw me go into the lodging house, and I went straight to bed. Which you wouldn't be bloody well surprised about, really, after such an epic walk. I'd be right shagged out. It was the following day, the Monday, when Walstenholm read of the sickening rape and murder of Elizabeth Piers, that he'd immediately thought of the man he'd seen coming out of the Cullen Street entry, and had therefore told police what he'd seen. However, when he was cross-examined by a Mr Duda, acting on behalf of the city police, Walsenholm was challenged about discrepancies in his story. It was put quite forcefully to him that he was lying about when he went to witness, and picked up on his conflicting claim that he'd paid his landlady the rent for his lodgings that afternoon between 1 and 1.30pm. Walsenholm claimed that he was confident about this time being correct because he'd been paid his wages from the Canada dock at 1pm that day. However, he also stuck to his claim that he went to witness on the 120 train, which not only was shown to be untrue, as there was no train that left from the central station at that time that stopped at witness, but would have therefore made his claim of paying his landlady at the same time impossible. Further, though Walsenholm could recall details about the man he'd seen in Cullen Street very clearly, 
he could not recall what he'd exactly told fellow boarders about the man before he'd told police of his sighting. He could also not explain convincingly why he'd washed the clothing he'd been wearing that Saturday on the day after the murder when he'd admitted when asked that they were clean, offering merely the excuse that he wished to pawn his shirt for cash. So his story was already starting to raise eyebrows when police hit him with another fact that cast doubts on his story. The man Walsenholm claimed to have been with on his trip to witness that Saturday, Harry Smith, was traced and brought to the court, where he told them that not only had he been working on a ship that previous Saturday, but he had never before in his life set eyes on George Amos Walsenholm. He also claimed that, to his knowledge, there was no other Harry Smith who worked on the Alexandra Dock and cast grave doubts on Walsenholm's claims about the time his wages were paid, saying, Dockers are never paid before two o'clock on a Saturday afternoon. Walsenholm's landlady, Catherine James, stated on oath that Walsenholm had not been working on the day of the murder, as she distinctly remembered him being about the lodging house early that afternoon. Between 3.30pm and 4pm, he had paid her two shillings and fourpence for his week's lodgings, and had then gone out. She'd not seen him again until the Sunday afternoon, when she'd gone to make his bed, and found him still in it. A few days later, Walsenholm had told her, Listen, if any detectives call here, you're to tell them that I live here. Sure enough, two detectives had come around shortly afterwards and she overheard him telling them he'd been in the neighbourhood of Cullen Street shortly after Lizzie had been murdered. When the detectives had gone, Catherine had asked Walstonholm, quite naturally as you would do, what he was doing in that area that night, and he told her he'd gone to visit a friend, although he would not say in which street this friend lived. She'd also found underneath his mattress the following day a shirt and a soiled piece of rag, and when she'd asked him about them, he'd refused to explain why they'd been placed there. Another lodger of Catherine's, John Thompson, told the court that Walsenholm was known to the other boarders as, I quote, an unreliable and immature fellow, who told tall and often conflicting stories, seemingly out of attention-seeking. If you've got an elephant, he's got a bag for it, that kind of person. He furthered that he'd also seen him several times tormenting children by picking their caps off, although nothing of a serious nature. Ultimately, it was accounts like this that dismissed Walsenholm's evidence as being unreliable, although surprisingly, and perhaps this was due to the style of investigative policing at the time, there are no reports that he was instead looked at as not a witness, but as a suspect in the murder of Lizzie Piers. Yeah, I know, it's surprising that, isn't it? In the summing up, the coroner told the court, quite caustically, A more dastardly act could never have been perpetrated than has been disclosed in this case. It was horrifying in its details, and it was intensified by the difficulties which surrounded the case by reason of the absolutely unreliable evidence of almost everyone connected with the case. From beginning to end, the Pierce family members seemed to be at sixes and sevens, they could not give any really connected account of their movements which would enable police to obtain a starting point. 
The reason for this is pretty obvious when we consider the character of the individuals. The mother, when the crucial time came, could not even fix her memory and state anything at all that was reliable. Even when we appealed to her maternal instincts to help us discover the murderer of her child, she was unable to remember anything owing to the drunken state in which she was at the time. The conditions under which these people live together are absolutely revolting. Now what he meant by that comment was that William and Elizabeth Piers liked to drink, shall we say. The area in which they lived at the time was somewhat of a slum, and Lizzie had been portrayed by newspaper reports as a slum child, given independence way beyond her years, and largely used to run errands that her parents simply could not be bothered to do, than being far more interested in drink. The newspapers leapt upon this angle and used it to highlight the view that many newspapers saw, how children were often neglected in such areas. And this is what it seemed to be in Lizzie's case. For although one witness claimed in an article that it was not unusual for children to still be out playing at midnight in such areas, a 10-year-old girl should have at that time been in bed, not, what, not turfed out on an errand while her parents plied themselves with alcohol. And I'm sure that the general public felt the same way. In fact, the reason for the large police presence at Lizzie's funeral was as much as the police of the city showing respect touched by her tragic fate as it was to prevent the crowds from turning nasty on the chief mourners, Lizzie's parents. At the point when he said this in his summing up, Mrs. Piers broke down sobbing as she realised that the coroner was indeed referring to the constant drunkenness of her and her husband, which had been displayed just two days after the murder, when so drunk had she been, though the shock of losing your youngest child must have set her in shock and grief of course, but so drunk had she been that she'd spilt a paraffin lamp in the peer's home, setting the furniture on fire. Dazed, she was dragged out of the house to safety by neighbours, but was still so drunk that she could not stand up, and fell and quite badly injured her face. Even when she had heard news of a child's body being discovered, before she knew it was her own daughter, she was reported to have said, God help some poor mother, before going to get some more alcohol. It brought home to her the damnation of the coroner's words when she realised that she'd sent a ten-year-old girl out on an errand at midnight, without even considering her safety, all so she could continue drinking. As soon as Mrs. Pierce brought her emotional outburst under control, the coroner continued, The story of the Walsenholm man was of a very singular nature, and one which we are very scarcely able to credit. Still, it was thought proper to lay the man's evidence before the jury, so the public should know exactly what the police were endeavouring to do. Walsenholm was proven to have told a lot of lies, and was a man who was in the habit of inventing stories but with some semblance of truth in them. The police know the cause of the child's death and how she'd been foully murdered by violence of an indescribable nature, but they could not find out who had done it. And so, the jury delivered a verdict of willful murder by person or persons unknown, adding that the parents of Elizabeth Pierce be publicly and severely censured for their drunkenness, especially Elizabeth Pierce Sr for having sent the child out so late 
and her unnatural conduct when her daughter had not returned. When both parents were brought into the well of the court, the coroner addressed Lizzie's mother, saying, If you had been able to give a clear statement, the police might have found the murderer of your child. The difficulties of the case were enhanced by you not being able to affix the time that you sent the child out. As Mrs. Piers wept silently, her head bowed, the coroner addressed William Piers, saying, As to you, sir, you should have asserted yourself and been master of your own household. Both of you should be ashamed of yourselves. Which you'd have to think that they must have been. I'm all for straight-talking people, of course, but I doubt that you would get a rebuke such as that in a courtroom today. It's far too woke a world we live in, isn't it? Now, the investigation was reportedly undertaken to the best of the abilities at the time, and it would seem possible, indeed, would seem likely, that police had spoken to the killer during it, but the murderer of Lizzie Pierce was never brought to justice for his horrific crime. And did the same man strike again, less than a mile away, and just over two years later? We skip forward now to the bitterly cold, wintry afternoon of Monday the 6th of January 1908. Seven-year-old Margaret Kirby, who was known affectionately to her family and friends as Madge, was playing in Kensington Gardens, just around the corner from her home at number 55 Romilly Street in the district of Kensington, just a mile and a half from where Lizzie Piers had been found back in October 1905. Here, Madge lived with her father, David Kirby, a 38-year-old journeyman plumber, her three-year-old brother, George, and her infant sister, Emily, a family already blighted by tragedy, as Madge's mother, Jane, had died only four months before, whilst giving birth to Emily in September 1907. On this afternoon, approaching dusk, Madge, who by all accounts was a striking-looking young girl, complete with a fresh-faced complexion, large expressive blue eyes and long brown hair, had just left her school, St Michael's, and was playing with her brother George and her best friend and classmate Annie McGovern by a nearby reservoir at the end of Farnworth Street. That afternoon, Madge had worn a black shirt, one that was somewhat frayed at the sleeves, a result of Madge's habit of rubbing her sleeve against the school desk lid while she was bored a blue pinafore dress, black stringed velvet bonnet and black laced boots and she stood out from the other children. As they played happily and innocently, the children were unaware that they were being watched, one of them in particular. It cannot be determined how long the individual watched the children for, but it was long enough for him to single out one of them and choose them and to wait until he considered the time was right to strike. The watcher, a man dressed smartly, entirely in black, approached the children and asked Madge if she wanted to accompany him to get some sweets, a suggestion to which the trusting child smiled and nodded. The man in black then took Madge by the hand and the pair walked away, leaving Annie McGovern, Madge's brother George and their other playmates watching as the child and the stranger walked through the gate of Kensington Gardens and across the high street. He then led Madge down Cottenham Street the last time that any of her friends or her brother were to see Margaret Kirby alive. 
George went home to tell his father what had happened, but Mr Kirby, who'd left home that day for work at 6.30am, was working late that evening and didn't return home until it was gone 8.15pm. Though alarmed by this, David Kirby went in search of his missing daughter, but she was nowhere to be found, and he subsequently reported her as missing to police. A wide-scale hunt was initiated as a result, through which some 5,000 empty properties were searched. Parks and derelict grounds were scoured, lakes and waterways in the area were looked into, there were mass house visits and stringent door-to-door inquiries, but there was to be no trace of the missing girl found. The police had taken descriptions of Madge's abductor from her playmates in Kensington Gardens, and of all of these, the best was gleaned from her best friend, Annie McGovern, who described a tall man dressed in dark clothes with a white shirt, dark tie, and a dark-coloured moustache. In a well-spoken voice, he'd said to Madge, Will you come with me for some sweets? Another of the children who'd seen him, eight-year-old Christopher Sheehan, meanwhile, maintained that the stranger's words had actually been, Will you come with me, little girl, and I will buy you some sweets? Both children were sure that they would recognise this man if they saw him again, but following the abduction, another crucial witness came forward. Shop boy Robert Woodside, who lived nearby in Smollett Street, told police that he'd sighted Madge and her abductor at 5.30pm while he was delivering an order to the Rupert Hill area of Everton. He recalled the man in the black suit who matched the description of Madge's abductor as given by her friends, sure enough, leading a girl by the hand, a girl who he recognised as Madge Kirby and a girl who was in some clear distress and was crying. As Robert neared the pair, he noticed the man pull the girl along quite violently when she cried, leading to Robert shouting, Come on, Madge! Though Madge turned around as she heard her name called, and indeed tried to break free and get to Robert, the man yanked the girl's arm roughly and hurried along up the street, dragging the poor child behind him. At one point, when the man realised that Robert was indeed following them, reports are that he got within three yards of the pit, The abductor told Madge forcefully to stay by the railings at the top of Rupert Hill and then turned and chased Robert away before going back to grab Madge. So distressed and petrified was the seven-year-old by this time that she made no attempt to escape and out of fear indeed stayed there as her abductor had told her to do. Tragic that, eh? Whilst Robert had immediately headed home to tell his father what he'd seen, before reporting it to the Bridewell police at Prescott Street, a waitress named Jane Hughes, who served at the Cocoa Rooms on Brownlow Hill, later came forward with a sighting that was likely imaginary abductor an hour after Robert's encounter. She clearly recalled a man and a child being in the tea room between 6.30 to 7pm, remembering this especially because the child's face had stayed on her mind. It was smeared with tears, and she'd served the pair bread, butter, and cups of tea. She could even accurately describe the child's black velvet bonnet, identical to that that Madge had worn at the time of her disappearance. But there was no further sign of Madge Kirby, and soon the days turned into weeks with no sign of the missing girl. Then spring changed to summer. It was almost eight months later 
at 6.55am on the morning of Tuesday the 11th of August that woodcarver Tom Moody, on his way to work that morning, discovered a large bulky sackcloth sugar bag on the pavement on Great Newton Street, just off Pembroke Place. Becoming curious about this out-of-place item, Tom cut open the sack, recoiling in horror when he saw what the object was inside. The badly decomposed, bent double, half-naked remains of a small child. The killer, for it was the body of a young girl, had bent the body in such a way whilst forcing it into the sack that the back of her head was touching the back of her thighs. From the appearance of the sack, it was clear that the remains had only been deposited there a short time before discovery, as the sack was bone dry, whereas it had rained heavily the previous night. Further, a lamplighter had passed the spot only some 30 minutes before the discovery, and had seen nothing, so it was deduced that the killer must have brought the body out of a nearby house, dumped it, and then fled, perhaps because the property was due for demolition. This was indeed found to be the case, because a search of derelict properties in the in Great Newton Street led police to number 15, where in the cellar of the property, they discovered hair, shriveled shreds of skin, and pieces of clothing that matched the hair and clothing found with the body in the sack. Immediately sadly suspecting who they'd discovered, police then had to convey Madge's father, David Kirby, to the mortuary at Prince's Dock, where he was shown the corpse. He recognised the clothing as being that of his daughters immediately, but such was the deterioration of the body that he could not be certain that it was that of his daughter and the emotionally wrecked man had to state that from what he'd seen, he was satisfied was Margaret. Mr Kirby never recovered from the murder of his beloved daughter, and later that day, at his home, he was heard to say before he collapsed on his bed, This will finish me. Sure enough, David Kirby was never to rise from his bed again. Just weeks after the discovery of his missing daughter, he had died of a broken heart on the 28th of September, aged just 38. Tragically, the third member of the Kirby family to have died within less than a year. The day after her discovery, the city coroner, again Mr T.E. Sampson, had suspended the inquest into Madge's death, held at Dale Street Courthouse, by recording the cause of death as Vulgar violence followed by suffocation or strangulation caused by person or persons unknown, willful murder. And the following day, the pathetic remains of tragic Madge Kirby were laid to rest at the Catholic cemetery in Ford in the same plot as her mother had been. Thousands of mourners from across the city were moved to tears as they lined the route of the funeral cortege and most of the Kensington shops closed their shutters as a mark of respect. Out of the several floral tributes to the murdered girl, perhaps the most touching was the harp of flowers from Madge's best friend Annie, which was laid lovingly on her coffin. The same day as Madge was laid to rest, however, a letter written in the neat and legible copperplate handwriting of a person of obvious education had been delivered to the police station on Prescott Street, addressed to Detective Inspector Moore, the officer leading the hunt for Madge's killer. Its envelope was marked, 
from Madge Kirby's murderer. It had been sent from someone claiming to be Madge's killer. The letter, extracts from which were released to the press, read as follows. Dear Sir, I should like to throw a little light on the murder of my victim, Madge Kirby. Some years ago, I was a lodger at number 15 Great Newton Street, so that I know the house thoroughly, and I am still in possession of a key to the front door, which I used in those days. On the night of January 6th, at a quarter to nine, I took the girl through the front door, and it was quite dark. We'd been over to the World's Fair before then. The next part of this letter was never released publicly, for it contained what you can only surmise is a depraved description of what her killer had done to the poor child. The redacted letter then continues. That is the way I treated her, and then I did away with her. The way I killed her, you will no doubt find out today. At 5.35 on Tuesday morning last, I entered the house once more with my key, not with the intention of moving the body for good, but with the intention of letting the world know what became of the child. If I'd not been drinking, I don't suppose I would have attempted the task. It may lead to my arrest, and only the drink have I to thank for it. I'm now going to give you a real clue to work on. I am a regular at the public house mentioned, which was called the World's End. Since I've made this confession, I will be obliged to say goodbye to and a person's name was given in this part of the letter, although it was never publicly released. It continues, I suppose they've been good friends to me. I've given you a chance for your money now, so do your best, but I'm sure your manhunt will be in vain. If this letter was genuine, and it was believed to be from Madge's killer, then what was the reasoning behind sending it? Had the author, after much agonising, decided to let the world know of Madge's fate, perhaps a pang of remorse, yet equal in cowardice? Or was it, as I suspect it was, a further thrill? It wasn't enough to taunt the police about trying to catch him, it was reliving through writing the thrill for him of what he'd done to Madge. Unreal, isn't it, eh? Detectives working on the investigation made exhaustive but ultimately unsuccessful inquiries at the World's Fair as a painstaking search of number 15 Great Newton Street and with the notion that the letter writer, who as I said they firmly believed was Madge's killer, being a former lodger at the house, they began to try and trace the former occupants. In 1900, its occupant had been one George Webb, who hadn't taken any lodgers in but he'd left here the following year when the tenancy had changed hands to that of one Daniel Walsh, who was unable to be traced. A year later, the tenancy had changed hands once again, this time into the possession of one Nathaniel Schwernsky, who had the tenancy here until the 31st of August 1903, and who was traced. Now Nathaniel admitted that he'd taken in lodgers, and he recalled one especially, an odd eccentric man, always smartly dressed, with a dark moustache, who called himself John Thompson. Nathaniel knew little more about the man, but recalled that he'd given off the impression that he was of some education, and was thought to have lodgings elsewhere in the city, quite possibly Everton Brow or St Anne Street. Now the name Thompson crops up twice in the account that I opened the episode with, 
It's the name of the man that Walsenholm claimed he had gone with seeking to look for work when they had their epic walk. And John Thompson is the name of a fellow lodger who gave an account of Walsenholm's character to police. Is this just a mere coincidence then, the name John Thompson? Or could the man who had raped and murdered Elizabeth Pierce and the man who had raped and murdered Madge Kirby be one and the same person? It's not a massive jump to think so, is it? There were a few clues initially found in the cellar of number 15 Great Newton Street that police believed may be connected with the murder, aside from the usual rubbish and debris that congregates in such places. An ornamental fan was found on the floor there, giving way to the theory that Madge's killer may have given her this to amuse her until he was sure he would be able to assault her without her cries being overheard. Newspaper bills, of the sort used at the time by newsagents to advertise the papers of the local press were found in the cellar that corresponded perfectly with some that were found in the sack containing Madge's remains, as both were found to advertise the same Liverpool Express and Liverpool Echo newspapers. A portion of a magazine called The Freethinker was also found there as well. But one diligent detective finally noticed a clue which, had the forensics been there at the time, could have led to the capture and ultimate hanging of Madge Kirby's killer. On an internal door to the property where the body had been kept that the killer had had to force open with a jemmy-type tool, he'd left both finger and handprints on the door and in a layer of dust on the floor. Although these prints were reportedly photographed at the time, no match was ever made with them. So then police decided to try bloodhounds. Late in the evening of Monday the 17th of August, a bloodhound named Saar, owned by a dog handler named Packenham, who coincidentally had lived in the next street to Elizabeth Piers, was deployed along with a less gifted one, a Great Dane which was used as a decoy to draw away the enormous crowds that had been congregating outside Prescott Street Police Station reportedly some 2,000 people strong. When the decoy dog was deployed, people followed it in droves, some on horseback, some on bicycles, others with sandwiches and refreshments, even women pushing prams, and at least two people being pushed in wheelchairs, all prepared for a ghoulish day or night out, and a bit of a gawp, you know. As soon as these crowds had buggered off, just after midnight, Tsar, who'd been given the scent of Madge Kirby's clothing, was taken from the police station and to 15 Great Newton Street. When Tsar came sniffing out of here, he took the police immediately on a somewhat curious journey, first heading strongly to a section of wasteland on the eastern extremities of Edge Lane, which he scouted around several times, before heading across and through Wavertree Botanic Gardens and onto Tunnel Road, where he then went wild. Tsar dragged the handler into Edge Hill Railway Station, where he strained against the lead to get to the tunnel on the city centre-bound platform that led to Lime Street Station. Once he was transported to Lime Street, Tsar again was animated, running straight for Platform 1 and barking once again at the tunnel there. Now the tunnel from Platform 1 was where the trains that went to Birmingham and the south left through. Based upon the dog's behaviour, it was of the opinion that Madge's killer had left from that platform 
the night before. And then police received another letter from the killer. Dated London, 17th of August, 1908. It read, Dear Sir, I told you I would give you a run for your money, and I mean to. Perhaps you didn't comprehend the delight that the chase gives me. You cannot understand any case that does not proceed from the lower orders. London is a large place with several millions of inhabitants. Can you identify me? It is no good giving you a description of myself, because you would be sure to arrest some man without a single resemblance to me, and I don't want to get anyone into trouble. Moreover, you probably imagine that an epileptic always behaves in some odd manner, but let me tell you that with the exception of the times when the mania is on me, I am a very normal person indeed. And if you could see me now, sitting in a merchant's office, typing this to you, you'd be the last to think I could be the man you were looking for. If the man who has given me the use of his machine for half an hour could be told that I did to death that Kirby child, his incredulity would be amusing in the extreme. On the whole, I would not advise you to send to London to find me, as my stay in the metropolis is of a rather uncertain duration. If you have any friends there whom you're wanting to visit, why not come yourself? You could get all your expenses paid and will be regarded as a zealous officer. Liverpool could well spare your services for a few days, and you would get a pleasant holiday, for which you might thank me. If you come down and I'm still here, I shall endeavour to see you under some pretext or another. In that case, I will write again to let you know at what places I was near you. You know that it's no good searching the house in Great Newton Street, simply because I don't happen to be there at present. I throw out this advice to you for what it's worth, as it may save you a little time and trouble, and if you come to London, you can go to the exhibition. It is quite worth seeing. I went there myself last Saturday and found one could see very little in one visit. Yours as before, Little Kirby's Killer. Mocking and twisted or what that, isn't it, eh? What is the mindset behind something like that? Police were to receive other letters that the contents of which were not released, although it was revealed that these were signed the King of Darkness. One, received in Dewsbury, claimed that the author was staying in the area for a week, after which he would kill again. The letter, adorned with a doodle of a skull and crossbones, and what local press of the time depicted as, I quote, a rude drawing of a child's face, it once again invited police to catch him, saying, I dress in black and brown boots and cross the market every day at one o'clock. Yet the author was never identified, and as time passed, there were no further killings that could be attributed to likely the same man, at least in Liverpool, not for more than a decade anyway. Once again though, the hunt for Madge Kirby's killer had come to a dead end. Though a couple of suspects were identified and arrested, no charges were ever brought, and Madge's killer remained faceless a phantom to terrify the children of the area. Several members of the public did have some strange tales to tell, however, about a strange and sinister-looking figure that they'd seen prowling around in the alleyways surrounding Great Newton Street around the time Madge's body was discovered. This man, who was said to have been dressed in women's clothing, 
was reported to have been seen climbing over the backyard of the house where Madge's body had been kept, and signs were reportedly found that the wall had indeed recently been scaled before Madge was found. What was likely the same individual was also believed responsible for several assaults on children in the Smithdown Road area earlier in the year. Now, more than a century ago, cross-dressing would certainly have been considered as odd and eccentric, as would writing letters to taunt police, for although they're well written, the contents would seem somewhat rambling, very goading I thought, but somewhat rambling still, and they offer nothing clearer than taunts. All the work of the individual, police strongly suspected, was the man named John Thompson. Sadly, tragedy was to inflict itself on the Kirby family once more in the year following Madge's murder and the death of her father from a broken heart, when her infant sister Emily died from a fever aged just 19 months. Her brother George, having seen so much tragedy in his life, died himself in 1960. Now there is somewhat of a postscript to the story. A report exists of a resident of the area who recalled an incident in the 1950s when she was a child where she'd been playing hide-and-seek in Ford Cemetery and had hidden near to the Kirby family grave. Upon the grave, George had many years before sanctioned a glass-domed ornament containing flowers and a plaster of Paris statue of the Sacred Heart, complete with a New Testament quotation upon a satin scroll. As the girl hid, an old man with a flowing white beard came along, unaware that he was being watched, and then began to spit and swear at the Kirby grave, before smashing the tribute atop it to bits with his walking stick. This sudden and strange act of desecration frightened the girl, and she got up to run off from behind the gravestone where she'd been hiding. The man shouted something illegible after her, frightening her further, and leaving her badly shaken and distressed by the time she left the cemetery. Bizarre behaviour indeed, eh? Work of someone demented? Religious mania? Or is it possible that this was Madge's killer? inflicting further indignity long after her death. But the flowing white beard mentioned here struck me concerning another account. We skip forward some 17 years onwards from Madge's murder and just some five miles away crossed the River Mersey to the Merseyside town of Birkenhead. By January 1925, even at just the tender age of 11 years old, Nellie Clark had been no stranger to tragedy. Her father, John Wallace Clark, a sapper in the Highland Light Infantry, had been killed in France during World War I. She'd lost another sister to scarlet fever aged just 18 months, and yet another of her sisters, eight-year-old Mary, had two years before been killed in a road accident near to the family home, number 16 Burn Avenue, in the Merseyside area of Rock Ferry a corporation house set opposite the entrance of Edgerton Park, just off the old Chester Road. Some years before, though, Nellie's mother Sarah had remarried to a sheet metal worker named Peter Carr, a kindly man who took to the children well and loved them as though they were his own. 
Saturday the 10th of January 1925 had been a happy day for Nellie and her 13-year-old brother John, for a New Year's entertainment bash was being held at Birkenhead Town Hall for the children of ex-servicemen of the city who had died in World War I, and both of them were amongst the 600 local children who were attending. The party, which was the idea of and was hosted by the newly elected Lady Mayor of Birkenhead, Mary Mercer, was a grand affair in which the children were treated to a tea of sandwiches, fruit and cakes, and took part in several party games and events. Each child was also given a present by the husband of the mayor himself, who was dressed as Father Christmas, and Nellie's gift had been a doll that she'd loved instantly, and had christened Betty, whilst John had been given a gleaming chrome harmonica. As the children walked back home to Rock Ferry, Nellie played constantly with her doll, and John with his harmonica, and by the time they'd reached home, they were in high spirits and spoke of the happy time they'd had that afternoon, as they shared apples and oranges with the rest of the family. Now, Nellie and John had arrived home just before 7pm, and Nellie had barely had any time to play with Betty, before at about 7.45pm, her mother sent Nellie on an errand to a second-hand dealer's shop at 201 Old Chester Road which was only a few streets and a few minutes walk away. Sarah had sold a pair of shoes to a local shopkeeper beforehand, and it was Nellie who was trusted to go and collect the money for them. As we've heard of the times, it seemed to be commonplace to send youngsters out at all times of the night, plus the shop was less than a 20-minute walk away, and the child was expected to return home within the hour. So... Nellie, still dressed in her best Christmas clothes that she'd worn for the party, a red and white striped blouse frock underneath a light brown coat with a dark fur collar, shiny black boots and a new red tam o' shanter hat, duly set off. But when by 9.30pm Nellie had still not arrived back home, Sarah Carr went to the shop herself to make inquiries, only to be told by the shopkeeper when she arrived that Nellie had indeed been there more than an hour before, but had stayed for only a minute or so, and had then left. Returning home, Sarah told her husband, and together they set out to search the neighbourhood for the girl, but could find no trace of her, and by midnight, the cars had called in at Rock Ferry's Meadow Lane Police Station to report Nellie as a missing person. By the following morning, a description of the missing girl had been circulated to all officers on duty. At 8.25am that Sunday morning, a man named Martin Doran, a painter and decorator who lived at Number 1 Highfield Grove in Rock Ferry, opened the gate that led from his backyard into the passageway that ran between Highfield Grove and the neighbouring Spencer Avenue. He let out of their kennels his two dogs, a retriever and a spaniel, so that they could have their early morning run, and was then horrified to notice the body of a young girl behind a telegraph pole that was near to the gate. It was clear, even just by looking at her, that she was dead. Describing how he found her later to the press, Mr Doran said, The girl was in a sitting position behind the telegraph pole, where she would not be seen by people passing along Spencer Avenue. Her clothing was not disarranged, but her features had an agonised look. Mr Doran immediately sent for police, with the official police report describing the scene upon their arrival as follows. 
The body was found lying on its right side, with the right shoulder leaning against the telegraph pole, and the head bent forward in the space between the pole and the wall. The tam had fallen off, although otherwise she was fully clothed. Her knees were bent, and she had apparently been carried by the shoulder and back, and laid in the position where she was found. One spot of blood about the size of a half-crown was found on the path, but there were no signs of a struggle. The girl's body was then removed from the scene and taken to the children's hospital in nearby Woodchurch Road, where the post-mortem was conducted by police surgeon Dr. A. W. Pierce and resident doctor Dr. Christian Walsh. Their findings were reportedly as follows. There was evidence of a severe blow to the head underneath the girl's right ear, a blow sufficiently hard enough to cause a few minutes unconsciousness, bruising on her left shoulder from the shoulder blade to the end of her spine, and scratches on both sides of her ribs, and long bruises and abrasions on her neck, which indicated that her throat had been held. There was also clear evidence that up to nine to ten hours before discovery, the 11-year-old girl had been savagely raped and defiled by her killer with extreme brute force, so savagely that cause of death was ruled to be not due to strangulation, but more to exhaustion and shock from this. Utter horror. Raped and strangled to death, with her body left in a passageway that she knew, but had hurried past many times before. Why Nellie had been sent out that evening on an errand instead of her brother is especially puzzling, because Nellie was a girl who had a terrible fear of the dark, with a particular phobia about unlit alleyways, where she was left murdered as her family searched for her. Contacted because girl's body likely equals missing girl. Peter Carr was to identify the girl's body as that of his missing stepdaughter Nellie, and then gave permission for her body to be taken to the mortuary in Price Street. Chief Constable of Bergenhead, Captain A.C. Dawson, his deputy, Superintendent A. Lodge, and Detective Inspector Gordon Hughes were the officers taking charge of the investigation, and immediately made a close examination of the area where Nellie's body had been found and the near vicinity of here. It was a location that was in the opposite direction to that which Nellie would have taken to and from the shop, a passage paved with granite sets, and which was unlit, leading from Spencer Avenue and then sharply leftwards between the back of houses in that street and those in Highfield Grove to the rear of Highfield Crescent. Now, Mr. Doran's two dogs had given no warning during the night of hearing any unusual sounds near to their kennels, and although the dogs had been trained not to react to people passing along the street, he was certain that they would have barked at hearing anyone in the vicinity of the yard gate. He'd also retired to bed late that Saturday evening, and he and his wife slept in the back bedroom overlooking the passageway, but had not heard anything and had not been disturbed at all. So, Nellie was unlikely to have been raped and killed there where she was found. Because Nellie had been discovered fully clothed, it was thought that she had been outraged, that was how it was described in the press of the time, in a house nearby while undressed. It was felt unlikely to have been anywhere outside, 
as her clothing at first showed no signs of mud or dirt other than mud on the soles and edges of her boots. Now, as we've heard, when Nellie had left her home on the Saturday evening, her clothing was clean and her boots were specifically clean but were muddy when found, which led to the belief that she had at some point crossed wasteland and there was indeed a plot of muddy open ground fronting Highfield Crescent, which lay between where Nellie's body was found and her home, as well as an old derelict house that stood on the patch. Though she'd been redressed after death, closer examination of Nellie's clothing did however reveal that her socks were found to have blood on them, the middle button was missing from her coat, and the elastic from her underwear, her vest, and a pink-bordered handkerchief she'd had with her were also missing. A curious stain was also noticed to the front of her dress and to her undergarments, which was later identified as engine oil. As a reward of £200 was offered for information leading to the arrest of Nellie's killer, the inquest into her death was opened at Liverpool Coroner's Court on Tuesday the 13th of January which coroner Cecil Holden opened by declaring she had been most brutally treated and brutally murdered. The only evidence taken at the inquest was that of Nellie's stepfather, Peter Carr, who told the court of his identification of his stepdaughter, and that of Martin Duran, who had found Nellie's body. Before the inquest was adjourned, the inquest jury were then taken to where she was found in which Mr. Doran laid down a Macintosh to illustrate the position in which he'd lain. The funeral of Nellie Clark took place early on the morning of the 15th of January at Bebbington Cemetery. Although the early time of 8am was kept secret from publication in the newspapers, when the hearse and cortege of funeral cars drew into Burn Avenue to collect the family, a crowd had quickly assembled because the avenue was at the time a shortcut for commuters heading across to the railway station, and many had stopped by on their work to witness the event. The tiny coffin bore five floral tributes, including a wreath from the Mayor of Birkenhead, and another that was inscribed, with deepest sympathy from a schoolmate, A. Forshaw. The Mayor, shattered by the young girl's death, had also launched a fund to help the bereaved family with the funeral expenses, as well as to be able to send Sarah Carr away to her sister's home in the countryside in order to save her from a possible and understandable nervous breakdown. Remember, as I started the account, I told you that Sarah had up to that point already lost two children in tragic circumstances. Work also got underway by the corporation to try and secure a house for the Carr family on the Hoylake Road at the north end of the town in order to remove them from the scene of their latest tragedy, whilst the hunt for tragic Nellie's killer got underway. Through reports, later establishments of her movements revealed that when Nellie had arrived at the second-hand dealer's shop just after 8pm, the proprietor, instead of handing the money to Nellie, asked that her mother call for it on the Monday morning. Nellie left here straight away following this, but did not head immediately home, as she was seen again at about 8.30pm by a neighbour of the family, Mrs Dalton, gazing into the window of a confectioner's shop nearby at the top of St Paul's Road. 
Mrs. Dalton gave Nellie a penny that she owed to her mother and moved on to complete her own errand. When she passed back by the confectioner's ten minutes later, Nellie was gone. Shortly after this, a classmate of Nellie's named Lillian Smith saw Nellie heading back onto the old Chester Road from Wycliffe Street on her own, walking apart from a group of children in front of her, a sighting that was corroborated by Lillian's younger sister. There were two other possible sightings of Nellie reported around this time. A Mr Mercer, who ran Milne's Butcher's Shop in New Chester Road, told police some days later that that Saturday evening, shortly before 9pm, he'd seen a well-dressed, tall man with a little girl pass his shop, a girl who was dressed similarly to Nellie. He'd not seen the man's face clearly, but he was struck by what he described as the uncanny disparity between the two, for they seemed so totally out of place with each other. Mr Mercer had remarked later, They seemed such an ill-assorted couple that I was struck with a disparity. I took a second glance at them and remarked to the shop boy, he looks like a child stealer. I bet that he's not the girl's father. He also recalled that the tall man had a peculiar walk to him. Now a further possible sighting of Nellie had been reported only a few minutes before this. A woman walking home along Rock Lane after getting off the 8.40pm Liverpool to Rock Ferry boat had noticed ahead of her a man walking towards Newchester Road. As he reached the junction with Mersey Road South, she noticed that the man was met by a young girl wearing a red tam o'shanter and similar clothes to those which Nellie had left home in. As the witness passed, she heard the girl say to the man, You said ten past nine, to which the man replied, I've come, what are you grumbling about? She too had not seen the man's face clearly, although she recalled that he had a moustache and was wearing a dark overcoat which clung to his waist. His trousers, she noticed, were well braced up. Now these two sightings could not be verified as being definite sightings of Nellie, and although you have to wonder exactly how many little girls with red tam o'shanter headdresses on are walking around a relatively small section of Birkenhead at that time on a Saturday evening, so we have to take the sighting by Nellie's friend Lillian Smith as being the last time 11-year-old Nellie Clark was seen alive by anyone except the man who raped and killed her. But tragically, although she wasn't seen, she was very likely heard. At around 9.50pm that evening, over an hour after Nellie had last been seen, a Mrs Green, who lived at number 88 Spencer Avenue, suddenly heard a loud bang at her front door, followed by a rattle of her letterbox and a child's voice screaming, Save me! Please save me! Then came a piercing shriek, and then nothing. Rushing and opening the door, alarmed, Mrs Green walked to the end of her front path and looked up and down the street, but could see nothing in the darkness. Believing she'd most likely imagined this, she went back into her house and closed the door. But Mrs Green hadn't misheard this, for her young son Robert had also heard the cries for help and the spine-chilling scream. But he'd heard more than his mother, for Robert had been startled by the child's, a girl's, 
frantic and absolutely terrified voice crying out words to the effect of help me please let me in please father christmas is after me say words to the effect because through researching there are several different variations of what was said available but what is commonplace through each is father christmas is after me now that struck me like you wouldn't believe and it's not a sentence i'll forget anytime soon for it conjures up all sorts of terrifying images that does doesn't it the green's house directly faced the plot of waste ground with a derelict house upon it also the occupants later stated to the inquest jury that a fanlight had been lit up above the front door on the saturday evening which may have attracted the girl's attention now whether this was nelly or not cannot be ascertained although the location would certainly fit with where her body was discovered upon hearing the account of the greens police later surmised that nelly had been snatched had suffered whatever awful indignity most likely in the derelict house across the road and had briefly broken free of her murderous clutches before being recaptured and dragged back into the darkness but then if she wasn't killed where she was found then why move nelly's body to there and when a retired police officer living in the area mr james tudor came forward and gave a statement to police saying on saturday night i was experimenting with a wireless set until well after midnight and then i walked out of the house to the corner of highfield avenue it was a moonlit night and i remember glancing up the passage where the body was found i should have seen a child's body if it had been there then but i didn't i went back into the house and went to bed at one o'clock shortly afterwards i heard a motor car drive into the avenue the engine was not shut off but the car stayed for a few minutes i heard someone getting out but no one spoke the car then reversed out into the main road whoever was driving was either agitated or was a bad driver for he ground the gears until i thought he would wrench the gearbox out he then made off at great speed if this was nelly's killer dumping her body then where did he rape and murder her and why leave her there more substantial clue led to a suspect that cast doubts on the driver of this car being nelly's killer however within hours of nelly's body being discovered police had discovered the missing button from nelly's coat at a rock ferry taxi rank about 400 yards from the scene an inch wide bone button the middle one from her coat one driver spoken to there recalled an agitated man as his demeanor was described in his early 40s about 5 foot 10 inches tall smartly attired slender and dark haired at about 10 p.m. the previous evening demanding to be taken to the nearest tram stop st paul's the cab driver did this and later that night the driver was having a drink in the nearby royal standard hotel when in walked the same agitated man he'd picked up earlier and who had a drink and then left other witnesses did recall seeing what was likely the same man on a tram acting oddly that evening and his movements were quickly traced to liverpool's lime street station specifically to the london train to st pancras though scotland yard was wired in a desperate bid to intercept him the man was never traced 
He was just one of a number of suspects that came to the attention of police during the investigation, however, alongside people such as a tram conductor who came forward with tales of a passenger on the 1025 tram that Saturday evening that left from Rock Ferry Station and who gave police details of the man being strange and agitated in his manner, laughing out loud occasionally whilst fingering and fidgeting with small bits of paper. A girl working in a parent's shop reported a man entering there late that Saturday evening, again in an agitated condition, with his hands stained red as if they were bloodstained, and who claimed he was ill and looking for lodgings where he would stay in bed until he was better. A jobbing gardener aged 75 who was pointed out to police by Nellie's brother as being someone who used to talk to Nellie and give her pennies. Another man who was detained when hairs found on his coat were thought to have come from the head of Nellie, though were later to be found identical to his own. And even Nellie's stepfather himself, Peter Carr, all came under suspicion, and all of whom were ruled out of an investigation that rapidly went nowhere, for it became cold as soon as it had begun. This wasn't to say that everything available to police as an investigative tool at the time wasn't used, however because they tried absolutely everything possible to bring the killer of Nellie Clark to justice. Massive house-to-house inquiries in the Rock Ferry area were undertaken, known offenders were looked at and one by one ruled out, and mass searches of properties and open ground were undertaken. The full Tommy Lee Jones bit from The Fugitive, you know. Even mediums, which we've heard in a previous episode, were immensely popular at the time. Even mediums were consulted but to no avail. As in the case of Madge Kirby, bloodhounds were also utilised and provided the one hopeful clue in the case. After sniffing at the murdered girl's clothes and starting from the alleyway behind Mr Doran's home, the dog used bolted off to a patch of waste ground near to the place where the child's body had been found and started to scratch away soil at a patch of it. It soon uncovered a set of rosary beads that Nellie had lost whilst out playing some weeks before her death. Proving its worth with this discovery then, the dog then led police to a field between Highfield Crescent and Spencer Avenue, where police found a discarded pair of salmon-coloured men's woolen socks wrapped in brown paper, and that they quickly concluded Nellie had been gagged with to stifle her screams before being raped and murdered. From here, the dog next led police down Rock Lane West and proceeded to an alleyway near some allotments behind Rock Ferry Congregational Church, which, upon reaching a corrugated iron sheet shed there that was used as a tool store, the dog stopped dead and looked at its owner, indicating that something relevant was inside. A large can of lubricating oil was found inside the shed, the same such oil that was unaccountably found on Nellie's underwear. But bizarrely, police ultimately took this strong-sounding lead no further, and instead, they focused on the one other lead that they had, one that ultimately led nowhere. A few days after Nellie's murder, the chief constable of Birkenhead, Captain Dawson, had received through the post an anonymous letter written on distinctive pink writing paper and which bore a Manchester postmark. The author of the letter, believed to but not confirmed to have been a woman, claimed to be one half of a courting couple who'd been standing in the shadows of the entry off Spencer Avenue, where Nellie's body was dumped, 
just after midnight on the evening of her murder. Hidden here in the shadows, the couple were alerted by heavy footsteps before seeing a man enter the passageway from the opposite end and deposit a bundle he'd been carrying on his shoulders against the telegraph pole before leaving. Thinking nothing more than this being a fly tipper, they'd not investigated further and had only reported their sighting when news of the discovery of a girl's body in the very same spot had been published. However, the letter offered no further information other than this, no description of the man, and despite widespread pleas from police in the press, and even copies of the handwriting on the envelope being shown to cinema audiences, the author never wrote again or came forward to give more information. Despite the nagging feeling that must have been that this may just have been a cruel and twisted hoax or attention-seeking, it was considered the one strong lead that police had, and it's so vague in its content that it basically repeated the known public facts about the crime that you think, why on earth was it? When the inquest resumed on the 5th of February, Police surgeon Dr W.A. Pierce summarised the forensic evidence of the case. There were numerous bruises and scrapes to Nellie's body, including severe bruising to her right shoulder, which indicated the extreme level of violence that must have been used towards her. These, said Dr. Pierce, could have been caused by the girl being thrown violently against an object like a table or a cupboard. There was a wound to the second finger of the girl's right hand, some three-eighths of an inch long and a sixteenth of an inch deep, that in his opinion could have been caused by a ring on the killer's hand. He again expressed his belief that Nellie had been attacked and killed indoors, and her body had then been carried to the spot where she was found. Death, Dr. Pierce said, was due to shock and exhaustion from the assault. It took the inquest jury less than fifteen minutes to record a verdict of Willful murder by person or persons unknown. Coroner Holden then completed the inquest proceedings by saying, The closing of this inquest does not mean that the investigation of the police will be in any way curtailed. On the contrary, they will proceed with continued energy, and I have high hopes indeed that the man who committed the crime will in the near future be brought to judgment. But sadly, it wasn't to be even despite officers from Scotland Yard being brought in. As time passed, that anonymous letter and the scores of vague suspects mentioned was as near as police came to catching the killer of Nellie Clark. The attached officers, Scotland Yard's Chief Inspector Savage and Sergeant Sprackling, did home in on a much more substantial possible lead than Birkenhead police had, the oily patches that were evident on Nellie's clothes which they ultimately identified as being a type of lubricant that was used on ship's engines. It was their suspicion that a seafaring man was responsible for the atrocity, a well-founded and plausible theory. But with Liverpool and Birkenhead docks being the busy ports that they were back at the time, with ships from all over the world coming to and going from there, complete with their crews, searching for such a man was a near impossible task. This was your literal needle in a haystack. There were no further leads along this possible line of inquiry until 1927, when the newspapers reported the upcoming execution of a killer for similar crimes, the murders of three young girls, in Germany. 
The man, who had formerly been a ship stoker, was discovered to have been berthed at Birkenhead on the evening of Nellie's death. His ship had sailed from Birkenhead the following day, however, and he never returned to England. Before his execution, the unnamed individual reportedly vehemently denied the murder of Nellie when questioned about it, and the Home Secretary at the time, Sir William Johnson Hicks, in fact denied in Parliament that these reports had any basis in fact. More than five years after her death, hopes of a closer-to-home solution to the crime were raised, when on the 18th of October 1930, a shabbily dressed Liverpool house painter, a 26-year-old named Peter Williams, who came from the district of Anfield, walked into a police station in the Derbyshire town of Chesterfield and confessed to murdering Nellie Clark. He was subsequently charged with the murder, placed before Derbyshire magistrates, and was remanded in custody awaiting trial. However, later the same day, when corroborating Williams's account, Birkenhead police indicated to Derbyshire that they were satisfied that Williams' confession was nothing more than a hoax, him being merely just one of the list of people who inexplicably confessed to crimes that they've not committed, as they had irrefutable evidence that he was not in Merseyside at the time of the murder. He was thus discharged from custody, however, for reasons unreported, was later re-arrested on charges to do with his confession and was sent to Walton Prison. But following a two-day hearing at the Liverpool Police Court, the Director of Public Prosecutions offered no evidence in the case and Williams was once again set free, though the judiciary concluded that his confession was a consequence of temporary insanity. And that was it, really. Though the file on Nellie's murder was never officially closed, the papers in it concerning the murder simply gathered dust and yellowed as the years passed by. But Nellie was never forgotten, of course not by her surviving family, her friends and neighbours, but also by the people of the community, albeit in the unsettling rumours that abounded that her killer was still at large and was often seen revisiting the scene of his crime, as well as stalking young girls in the vicinity. He became a kind of boogeyman to the children of the area. And, as I started the first part of this tale, as with Lizzie Piers, there then started to come tales of sightings of the ghost of Nellie Clark herself. Fanciful tales such as a group of girls who were playing in the Spencer Avenue alleyway one evening and who saw Nellie's ghost standing close to that telegraph pole, the mouth of the spectre wide open and its eyes bulging. A doll was also leaning against the pole. The figure then vanished and the children fled in terror. Another example is how some ten years after Nellie's murder, in 1935, a nine-year-old girl named Maureen Noden, one February evening, took a shortcut through the same Spencer Avenue back alleyway, and saw a curious and out-of-place thing at the very spot where Nellie had been found, a little doll leaning against the very same telegraph pole. Maureen later told how she then heard a girl's voice cry out, but from where she couldn't see, Go back, he's waiting around the corner. Maureen then noticed the face of a man with a white beard peering around the corner some 20 feet away from her, causing her to scream and turn and run home. Her mother later told her that she'd been saved by Nellie's spirit, 
for the doll Maureen had seen had to have been the murdered girl's beloved, Betty. Reports do trickle in that suggest that even today Nellie's restless spirit is still occasionally seen in the area. Decades after Maureen's sighting, in the 1990s, a student walking back through Spencer Avenue saw ahead of him the figure of a little girl apparently entering the alleyway behind there, even though it was by that time alligated. Snappily, when he reached level with here, he peered through the bars and saw a child in a red beret type hat and quaint old fashioned clothing sit down and rest against a telegraph pole midway up the alley. She then bowed her head and vanished. Now, as I said in the first part of the tale, you may be Mulder or Scully with these things, that's either put an ever so slight twinge of a chill on your spine hearing those, or you're thinking, sure up Paul, you're a fucking idiot, harsh like, but fair enough. But the next account I'll describe as fully as I was able to research it, though I'll maintain the family's anonymity, for it's what struck me to include Nellie's murder as the final of the three cases that we've heard of, each of the lost girl's tales. In February 1996, a family from Bebbington moved into a house on Highfield Road in Rock Ferry, only a stone's throw from Spencer Road. It was a rental property, one that was quite cheap to also, because, according to the landlord, of the noise from the railway line that ran parallel to Highfield Road and which passed the bottom of the property's back garden. The married couple who'd rented the house had four children, three boys ranging in age from 10 to 15 years old, and an eight-year-old girl that we shall call Polly. Now, Polly from the start said to her parents that she didn't like the house, and told her mother there was, I quote, something dark about it. But her mother, convinced that the child was just merely unsettled by the move, told her that she was just being silly, and that she'd soon get used to her new home. As the family began settling into the property, working harder than Barry White's belt, decorating throughout, making repairs to the outside areas of the property, and even transforming the garden, Polly had been given the attic of the house as a sort of playroom, because the room, a spacious area complete with a large old-fashioned type radiator in it, was a room that no one could find a use for. By the last week of that February, Polly's new playroom had been wallpapered and carpeted, and the mound of toys belonging to Polly had been installed up there. On the Saturday after this, Polly's best friend Zoe came to visit, but was reluctant to stay the night as she was arranged to, and even cried for her parents to come and collect her, saying that there was something spooky about the playroom, and the house too, which upset Polly. When Polly's parents put her to bed at 8.30 that evening, she complained to them of having a sore throat, but settled down after a spoonful of Calpol, her parents merely putting it down to her being upset that Zoe had not had a sleepover as arranged. Less than an hour later, however, her parents were roused from the television that they were slobbing out in front of by a blood-curdling, terrifying scream that had come from Polly's bedroom. Racing upstairs, they found their daughter hiding underneath her duvet, trembling. When they eventually managed to coax out of her what had happened to frighten her so, Polly said that an old man, who she described as being bald with glasses, a long flowing white beard and a moustache, had shaken her awake and asked her, smiling as he said this, 
Why is Goldilocks sleeping in my bed? Polly at the time had long curly blonde hair, and since she was a baby, her mother had often jokingly called her Goldilocks in their old home in Bebbington, but she'd never used the affectionate nickname in the present house. He was a ghost, the terrified girl insisted, because he then vanished. Though her mother checked her for a temperature and found that she didn't seem to have one, both she and Polly's father tried to reassure their daughter that she'd simply had a nightmare. As they sat with her for some 15 minutes to calm her, her eldest brother even came in and assured her that he was only next door to her and that he'd be in like a flash if she shouted for him. Reluctantly, the girl then tried to get back to sleep and everyone left her room. But about an hour later, the family heard Polly screaming once again and this time the child came running down the stairs in tears. In hysterics, Polly told her family that she wanted to go back to her old home and then her three brothers all came downstairs with the eldest saying, we just heard a man's voice. When her father went up to Polly's bedroom, he saw that her mattress had been pulled from the bed and the pillows had been put on top of the wardrobe. There was also a definite aroma of pipe tobacco hanging around in the air and yet no one in the household was a smoker. When she was eventually calmed, Polly said that the bearded old man she'd seen earlier had returned, and this time he had three horrible-looking dolls with him, dolls that could move and talk, and one of them had even brandished a little axe. Polly said that the old man had then told her, I killed three girls like you a long time ago, and they're my dolls now. Do you want to be my doll too? The three dolls with the man had then climbed onto the bed, Polly claimed. One was dressed like a sailor, one said that her name was Miss Flitch, a teacher, and she'd struck Polly's hand with a cane. The third doll had worn a striped blazer, and his stringy hair was combed over his head. He held a small hatchet in his hand, and in a plummy, quite well-spoken voice, he'd said to Polly, I could kill you quite quickly, Polly. You wouldn't even know you were dead. She would know, said the sailor doll, because she wouldn't be able to go back to her mammy and daddy. Terrified, Polly had then bodily thrown herself out of the bed and screamed as she escaped from the room. The traumatised and terrified young girl slept in her parents' room every single night after that night, too scared to be alone, and each evening, the family reportedly heard the faint sounds of 1920s music coming from the attic. It was investigated, but of the cause of it, there was nothing to be found. The family finally moved from the property only some weeks after this, having only been there a short time, when a neighbour told them that the real reason that the house was a notoriously hard-to-let property, having several tenants over the years, because it was said to be haunted by the man who had killed a child named Nellie Clark way back in the 1920s. The bald, bearded ghost Polly had described, she'd claimed looked like Father Christmas. What are the chances? I've never covered cases as far back as the tales of Lizzie, Madge and Nellie, but they're tales that leapt out of me when I came across them while searching through my library. They were originally earmarked for the regular enthusiast, 
but being ill at the time, they've ended up coming as a bonus tale for you folks. And as I said before, I decided to split the tale into two parts, because not only does it make it much more workable if I do, but it gives that much more bonus content for you guys too, doesn't it? And it makes for better storytelling. So I came across these cases in reverse order kind of, and being honest, I usually never tend to look as far back as this for cases, especially unsolved ones. But I always believe it's good to try something that you haven't done before, because you never know what may work if you don't try. And with this, what stuck in my mind more than anything is the terrifying sentence, help me, please let me in, or please, Father Christmas is after me. I find that I found that so really chilling and thought you've got to tell a tale that involves something like that haven't you so I went down the rabbit hole and whilst doing so discovered Lizzie's and then Madge's tales now the wrap up bit here is a bit moot really and there isn't very much that I can say that isn't speculation for frustratingly these are crimes that can now never be solved barring the long-ago penned confession turning up in some historical documents or paperwork that are discovered. And the perpetrator, or perpetrators of course, are of course long since left this earth themselves, and so never face justice for the crimes. That's about pretty much all we can definitively say. The descriptions of any possible suspects in each of the cases are vague enough that a positive identification could never really be made from them or are indeed lacking in some cases, and you have to bear in mind the times we're talking about. Not just the mind-boggling culture in which children so young could be commonly out on the streets unsupervised so late, and therefore at such risk, but also them being times of no CCTV, no DNA profiling, or any advancements in forensic science. Fingerprinting was available, but not having any fingerprints available that could be lifted, none of the advanced tools of detection that are available today. Frustratingly, there are aspects of each case that intrigue and pose questions, but that can never really be answered and were left to surmise, like, why move the bodies from where the girls met their deaths to where they were found, or how were Lizzie and Nellie lured away? If it was Nellie claiming that she was being chased by Father Christmas, was she describing someone who merely looked like the canonical image of him, or perhaps someone she'd recognised from earlier that day. Food for thought? Now I can't say if each of the crimes were connected, but I would reason myself that the killer was in each case a local man. Individuals offend where they're comfortable and familiar with, after all, and would undoubtedly, I believe, be responsible for other offences. The only thing preventing him from doing so would be incarceration or hospitalisation. These may, however, have been committed elsewhere in the UK, or perhaps even abroad, and so may not have been recognised as possibly being connected with the Liverpool cases. I also believe that he would have been in the crowd speculating at each of the funerals, especially in Madge's case. I think the author of the letters, where he indeed the killer, would have found it impossible to resist being present. It would have been an ultimate thrill, as warped as that sounds. However, and I told you at the start of the first part that this was a tale that would frustrate, because all of this, all I've said, remains speculation. We could be talking about three different killers here, as much as we could be talking about the same man. 
I do believe that the relatively small geographical locales of each of the three killings indeed makes it possible that the same killer was responsible for all three. The 17-year gap between Madge and Nelly, possibly due to him living elsewhere in the country through that period, or being abroad, perhaps being in prison for unrelated crimes, or perhaps in a hospital. Well, perhaps that's wishful thinking, really. You don't want to imagine there is more than one individual responsible for such foulness in a small area, do you? I could also not ignore some of the common themes between the accounts. Anonymous letters being sent to police in two of the cases, the similar dress and physical characteristics of each victim, and similar age group, prepubescent girls, the strange behaviour of possible suspects mentioned in the cases, and the relatively small geographical area between the three killings. And of course, white-bearded men. The sighting of the man in the cemetery in the 1950s of an elderly man would put the person at about the right advancement in years for the killer of Lizzie or Madge, if of course it was him. Father Christmas is also white-bearded, and there was the reported sighting of a white-bearded face peeping around the corner in the account given by Maureen, who had reported seeing Nellie's spirit in the 1930s. Now concerning said sightings, I like to think I'm a nice healthy mix of Mulder and Scully personally, and so have included the reported accounts of the spirits of Lizzie and Nellie being sighted, out of interest really. Plus, with Polly's account we've just heard there, fancy describing who she'd seen as looking like Father Christmas with three dolls that he claimed were the three girls he'd killed long before. A child's fanciful account? Or could those dolls have once been Lizzie, Madge and Nellie? What do you think? I hope that you found the Lost Girls of Liverpool episodes an overall interesting and informative tale, albeit a frustrating one, because that nice and tidy boxed away what exactly happened is lacking here. Nevertheless, these are three names that I will myself now never forget. Three young girls who died in the most horrific, tragic and terrifying of ways. And I hope that they're names that will stay somewhere in your conscience too. I would love as always hearing any theory that you may have concerning the cases. Tell me if you think I'm on the right lines or I'm spouting absolute shit. I don't mind, I'm always happy to hear some feedback. I'll endeavour to have something solved for the next bonus tale out as well. I thank you all once again for your very kind support of the show. It does mean the absolute world. And I look forward to you joining me back here for another bonus time around very soon. And usually each week on The Regular Enthusiast. From myself and the Mog that sleeps like a log, I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast. Wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon. Take care all, thanks once again for supporting and joining me, and goodbye for now.